There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. I'm going to go in some very different directions. Part of the reason is I saw the film, The Sound of Freedom, over the weekend of the holiday, the Independence Day holiday, which for me is about a lot more than barbecues and fireworks, although I do enjoy a good display of fireworks. One of the things that I had decided when the movie was first announced, and by the way, this movie was made in 2018. It is now 2023, but it got shelved repeatedly. And there's a reason, and I think I figured out the reason. First and foremost, it is not an easy movie to watch. It is not an easy subject to think about. It's a movie about child trafficking. And at the end of the movie, they give you some statistics which are startling, to say the very least, and disturbing right down to the core of who we are. And I was shocked, I must admit, that the volume of sex trafficking of children is largest in the United States of America. Slavery, which is what this is, child sex slavery, shouldn't exist anywhere. But the idea that it thrives in the United States is so anathema to who I believe we are that I really had to make mention of watching this film and the way it made me feel. And more interestingly, a number of the people that I spent the 4th of July with, the conversation drifted naturally to the movie, which many of the people had seen and a few were scheduled to see later on in the week. And to a person, I heard them say, I couldn't stop crying. Now, I felt a little odd because I didn't cry during this film, not once, even at the extremely sad moments when you got to see up close and personal how grotesque child sex trafficking is. I wasn't crying, I was furious. I was stomping my feet inside of the theater and I was very, very disturbed that no mention was made of the fact that we have a porous border and a great deal of sex trafficking happens across that border. It seems like we can talk about drugs and we can talk about guns, but we can't talk about child sex slavery, not in mixed company anyway. So for all the tears that were spent by primarily the women I was speaking with, there didn't seem to be sufficient fury by the men or by the women. And I found myself somewhat alone in my anger. Now, I'm not one of these people who sits around and says, there's a pedophile ring at a pizza parlor, nor do I think that Hollywood is unique 
in its preponderance of men who take advantage of young women and apparently young boys, as in the case of Kevin Spacey. I know that goes on, but it's not just happening in those places where you would expect it to be happening. The idea that sex slavery happens in the middle of America is so disturbing to me that I don't even know where to begin. Primarily, I'm going to begin with the idea that the left really believes that there's no value to human life. I know that seems like an overstatement of fact, but when you consider 50 years of unlimited abortion in the United States of America, you must admit that life is not all that precious to the people who promote all of that baby killing. So why would they be disturbed by the idea that young children could be sold like chattel and used in that manner? I've had my fill of people telling me that there should be reparations paid to one group or the other, whether it's African Americans or Native Americans or whoever the cause celebra is this week, when the same people who tell me that stuff seem completely oblivious to sex trafficking and the illicit pedophilia that goes on even in our own country. Now, granted, there are cultures where having sex with underage minors is commonplace, but I never thought of America as being that kind of place. I know that there were all those inbred people in Appalachia, according to movies like Deliverance, but I really never suspected that anywhere in America that you go, you can find sex trafficking going on. It doesn't take a Super Bowl to bring out the worst in people. And so I'm mad about this film. Yes, I'm sad for the children. And yes, I'm sad for the parents whose children have been abducted. But I'm furious that my government is so obsessed with political correctness and the woke ideology that forces them to present every transgendered military member to the public as though they were someone to be heralded and exclaimed over. Why don't we spend our time trying to resolve these horrifying issues like child sex trafficking, like illicit drugs pouring into our country, which are killing our young adults at record numbers? You see, those aren't pretty subjects to talk about, and it's not going to comfort any particular group to point out that primarily sex trafficking goes on because there's an unwarranted demand for child sex partners. I can't fathom what that's all about, and I'm sure most of you in my listening audience can't either, because the thought of abusing a child in any manner is just something I've never thought about. I cannot imagine why a person would want to even have sex with an underage child. It's beyond my comprehension. I don't find anything sexy about children. As a matter of fact, I'm furious that we keep introducing sex into their lives earlier and earlier, whether it's drag queen story hour or whether it's Heather has two mommies or any of the other BS that we are continuously pouring down the throats of our little children. And therefore, I get it. Apparently, sex with little children doesn't disturb the majority of the community. 
And why that is, I can never understand. But I know one thing. We're supposed to protect children. We're supposed to make sure that little kids have every chance to live normal childhoods and grow up without all of the trauma that's involved in kidnapping and sex trafficking. Imagine the families of these victims. They have to live with the knowledge, and many of them speak about it, that their child is not only missing, but probably being sold on a daily basis four or five times. That's the statistic that I learned from this movie. And that's enough to make your hair hurt. I bring this up because, again, nobody wants to talk about this subject. And kudos to Mel Gibson, who finally put money into it, and James Caviezel, who definitely, again, made a film that was important and probably wouldn't make him popular or wealthy. Interestingly enough, I read a review in Variety of all places, which is by no means a conservative publication. It's about as left-wing as you can find. And they gave rave reviews to the movie Sound of Freedom because they said it did not trivialize and it wasn't sophomoric. And that's exactly true. It's brutal. And with the exception of his probably most famous line in the movie, when Caviezel says, God's children are not for sale. It doesn't do a lot of religious moralizing. But I don't care if you are a religious person, a person of any faith, or a person who considers themselves agnostic or atheistic. You can't tell me that you find selling children okay. It's not okay. And the fact that we had to have a movie come out which startled so many people makes me even angrier because we pay attention to the celebrity gossip. And believe me, I understand that I have a child who makes a living off celebrity gossip. If there's a market for anything, people will buy it. What is so shocking to me is that there is a market for sexual partners who are five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years old. I always thought of underage minors as being young teenagers. And to look at the sex trafficking of little children really just shook me to my core. It's sad, but we don't have time to cry. They say that over 2 million children are currently being trafficked. Part of the reason I bring this up Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts despite the fact that uh, most people are talking about this movie and the effect it had on them, is because everyone knows my feelings about illegal immigration. And I don't ever want anybody to think that I oppose immigration, because I don't. I think legal immigration is a powerful tool to enrich our culture and our society. But inviting people into our country who want to become Americans is very different than having an open border 
where child sex trafficking can take place, drug trafficking, gun running can take place. That's where I draw my line. I'm going to share two articles that I read over the holiday weekend that they say it all. I don't have to editorialize. One is by Martin Gurry, and he talks about how he arrived in the United States as a child from Cuba, and he immediately realized that things were different here. Nobody talked politics. It was a boring subject. Everyone went calmly about their business and trusted everyone else to do the right thing. Pedestrians walked in front of moving cars because of some abstract notion called the right of way. The rules of social life were understood and internalized. Beyond that, it was up to you. The American people seemed to have freedom in their bones, in their DNA so deep that they didn't even notice. Is there such a thing as American exceptionalism? When asked that question, Barack Obama once replied, I believe in America exceptionalism, just as I suspect the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. As often happened with President Obama, he was both glib and wrong. Actually, each country is not exceptional in its own way and doesn't deserve a little trophy just for being there. The U.S. stands apart, and it isn't so much who we are that separates us from other nations as the path that brought us here. Each American alive today benefits from an extraordinary history. Call it luck, call it destiny, but those who came before us rose to every challenge in a manner that defied probability and bestowed on us, their heirs, the easygoing freedom of pedestrians who casually face down moving cars. Let's start at the beginning. In the hands of summer soldiers and sunshine patriots, the revolution could have gone wrong in many ways. Instead, we got the generation of the founders and framers, a world historical flowering of political genius. These were tough-minded, pragmatic men who fought and won a war against the greatest power on earth and built a framework of government that has lasted 235 years. But they were also brilliant political thinkers. Their most enduring legacy was an ideology of individual freedom, to which even our decadent latter-day politics must refer and yield. When I asked my five-year-old grandson what he knew about George Washington, all he could say was he owned slaves. That's how Washington is remembered today. Slaves, bad teeth, and a face on the dollar bill. But he won the Revolutionary War. The precedence he set as our first chief executive embodied the ideology of freedom and remain in effect today. Other great men of similar talents behaved quite differently. Napoleon began as first consul, then promoted himself to emperor. Simon Bolivar went from liberator to dictator. By contrast, Washington voluntarily and with much relief relinquished power and ended his days as a farmer at Mount Vernon. That was unusual, unlikely, and exceptional. The Civil War could have resulted in nothing more than a brutal power ploy, the North and the West devouring the South, much like Bismarck's Prussia swallowed the German principalities. That didn't happen 
because Abraham Lincoln gave the war a profound moral dimension. The last best hope for human freedom, he insisted, was at stake. It was Lincoln who defined our exceptionalism. He believed we were the first nation to rise above the accidents of history and be dedicated to a proposition. Yet an ideology of freedom couldn't coexist with chattel slavery. The slaughter of war was the punishment for that monstrous contradiction. Lincoln's second inaugural address, a towering moral document, reads like a combination of a Greek tragedy and a best book from the Bible. He was, to put it mildly, an uncommon politician. In times of need, other Americans have stepped into the breach with remarkable regularity. When the Great Depression shook our way of life to its foundation, Franklin Roosevelt rejected fear itself and restored faith in representative democracy. When the Cold War against the forces of unfreedom appeared eternally deadlocked, Ronald Reagan could conceive only of a single outcome. We win, they lose. And so it was. When the disgrace of Jim Crow segregation needed to be atoned for and eradicated, we should have expected and certainly deserved rage and hatred for the oppressors from the black leadership. Instead, we got a magnificently eloquent preacher who practiced nonviolence and taught Christian forgiveness. As anyone can tell who has read the letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. was nobody's pushover. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor, he wrote. It must be demanded by the oppressed. But he quoted the words of the founders in front of the temple to Lincoln in Washington, D.C., appealing to the American ideology of freedom and demanding a share of it for all Americans. And so began the long process of healing the nation. Even our industrialists and innovators have been exceptional. Anywhere else, if you wanted to make money, you had to sell to the government or to the rich. After all, they possessed most of it. But from Thomas Edison and Henry Ford to Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, American manufacturers aimed their goods at the ordinary citizen, the consumer. Ford actually kept the prices of his cars low to ensure that the great multitude could afford them. This started a virtuous cycle, since the more money ordinary people made, the more goods they could purchase. Higher salaries for employees actually benefited millionaire CEOs. Here was the ideology of freedom conquering the economic domain. And for those of you who love to sneer at consumerism, let me repeat a story often told. A Cuban woman, a recent refugee, entered a supermarket in Miami and proceeded to burst into tears. Surrounded by such a dazzling display of goods, her heart broke, she said, when she thought of the people she had left behind in Cuba who had so little. The opposite of consumerism isn't authenticity, it's scarcity and hunger. We are fortunate and exceptional that most of our problems stem from abundance. This amazing history is the property of every American, and it was the legacy that confronted Mr. Guri when he first arrived in this country. But here's the strange thing. Fairly quickly, 
Without knowing how, he started to think of it as his legacy. He internalized the evolution of freedom that the U.S. represents. It belongs to him no less than to any Mayflower descendant, maybe more, since he knew too well the alternatives to freedom. My process of Americanization bears thinking on. Having recently tested my ancestry, I know my genetic roots go back almost entirely to Spain, Corsica, and Hungary. So is Thomas Jefferson my forefather? Don't bother to answer. I know he is. He stands in a line with Washington, Lincoln, and Martin Luther King, and yes, Edison and Steve Jobs, who as older family members do, provided for me the maxims and models of how the life of a free citizen should be lived. I have had angry conversations with Jefferson as I did with my own father. He was an encyclopedic genius, but a frustratingly slippery character. Europeans have sometimes asked me why Americans are so obsessed with the opinions of long-dead politicians. My reply is that we have been exceptionally fortunate in our history. Becoming American without thinking about it is almost as if it happens by osmosis. Personal differences with native-born friends seem more like advantages than barriers. Being young in the United States for Mr. Guri felt like an immense adventure, a constant exploration and discovery of new perspectives in a land of infinite possibilities. Americans are restless and lonely, because we're always living on the edge of a frontier and are always tempted by the siren song of the future to leave everything behind. We are, in a word, unsettled. That's a rare but honorable condition. At some point, somehow, his life became that of an ordinary American. Go to school, get married, have children, become a bureaucrat at, of all places, the CIA, and move on to the serial pontification that he's engaging in in this editorial. His version of the American dream was never extravagant, but most of it did come true. And that's so amazing. The talk of freedom and unqualified praise for our country seems to come most often from immigrants who come from places where freedom has been sacrificed for some utopian ideal that never manifests. Well, those are just fumes inside of your head. But if you believe that you can achieve things, then you should rise to the level of the history that made you. Stop whining, stop throwing words around, and point to cases. Persuade people by engaging in respectful debate, using the shared language of reason and evidence as so many Americans have done before, become an avatar of freedom in a time of crisis so that your descendants, long hence, will look back with pride and say, that was an exceptional generation. There was another editorial written by Jeff Bloodsworth about two young women who came to this country, Mariam and Asla al-Kajafi, were in America because America is America. They were born in Baghdad a few years before the United States invaded their country in 2003. Their father, a mechanic, repaired bulldozers and trucks and power generators in the green zone. 
When they remember being children, they remember bombs exploding, the clatter of gunfire, the IED that blew up at school and almost killed them. And then in 2014, the ISIS death squads sweeping across Iraq, taking Mosul, encircling Baghdad. That was when they knew they had to get out. Their father had worked for the Americans, and he was a wanted man. The Americans put them on a Royal Jordanian flight to Amman in neighboring Jordan, then on to New York, then Philadelphia, and finally Erie, Pennsylvania, one of several resettlement hubs across the U.S., existing mostly because of the city's old Catholic community, the church, with a local resettlement agency provided an infrastructure for helping refugees, connecting them with jobs and schools. In Erie, the Klan, along with thousands of refugees who had streamed into the area over the decades from Eritrea, Bhutan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Syria, Iraq, and more recently Ukraine and Russia, did what countless newcomers did before them. They started to learn English. They met their neighbors. They joined churches and mosques. Their children befriended other children at school and picked up the lingo. They became American. The Al-Khajafi girls should have hated Erie. Like so many Rust Belt towns, it was littered with empty factories and it snowed a lot. Erie easily won the National Golden Snow Globe Contest for snowiest big cities in America in 2018 with almost 200 inches that year. But they didn't. They were whip-smart and buoyant, and they enrolled at East High, and even though the school was beat up and overrun with poor kids from rough neighborhoods, there was still opportunity. Mariam, as a high school senior, took free dual enrollment classes at Gannon University. Asla interned at an insurance company and the governor's office. They got up early. They were always on time. They got it. That was how you moved up in the world, and it was hard, but it could be done. When Mariam first applied to Gannon for college, she was rejected because they didn't think her English was good enough. She was a great student. So the dean of admissions changed the way they review refugee kids' standardized test scores, and she got in. At first, like everything, Gannon was a struggle for her. In biology, in lab, while students didn't want to partner with the girl with the hijab, Mariam remembered going to the restroom many times to duck into a stall and cry. Life beyond campus could be cruel. The unwanted stares at the gas station and grocery store. The ignorance of or indifference to where her family came from. But there were so many other Americans they met who were not like that. The teacher who gave Mariam a hug on her last day of class. The people at First Presbyterian Church who invited them to their Wednesday night dinners and the professor and students who showed up to their apartment in a battered building the evening before Thanksgiving 2014 with a gift basket. The building scared them. It was an old red line part of the city, and the neighbors were loud, and the cops were always there. To Mariam and Asla, it was all America, the beautiful and the pockmarked. They acclimated to school, they made more friends, and they felt they had a duty to love America the way America loved them. They thought of America as this wondrous, unfinished project, and even now, nine years after arriving here, they couldn't quite believe they were part of that. Their America, the America they imagined, 
reminded me of the America in Richard Rorty's classic 1998 essay, Achieving Our Country. Even though he was a committed leftist and he recognized America's past sins and current ills, the oppression of black people and Native Americans, the xenophobia, the wars that should have never happened, the economic disparities, the tribalization, the loss of community, but he also grasped that the way forward had been baked into the American idea itself. It was our founding ideas, our egalitarianism, which we had been striving toward from the start. National pride was not jingoistic, but akin to individual self-esteem. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.